The word of God from Isaiah and Luke. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. This is God's word given for our good. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Um, one of the things that we have the privilege of doing occasionally is inviting others in to share with us from the scriptures. And this morning, it is my great joy to bring up Max Anderson. He is a business owner here in Denver, and he's also a member of Denver Prez. And we're just delighted to have you come and share this morning, Max. Thank you. Hello. Good morning. Wow, that is, that's, that's on. Um, good morning. I am uh, Max. Ronnie is performing a uh, wedding out of town this weekend. And I'm kind of, I think the wind is kind of um, creating a little draft. Um, and tomorrow, Jason is defending his doctoral thesis. Um, so they needed someone to come in and pinch hit for the sermon. And all the qualified people were busy, so they called me. Um, I want to say hi and thank you to some family and friends who have come uh, to support me or to heckle me. We'll see which. Um, if they're disruptive, please escort them from the building. Um, I'm here with my wife, Jessica, uh, my daughter, Gracie, my son, Sam, my daughter, Dahlia, and my daughter, Carolina, who is studying ballet in New York, I think is watching on the live stream. Um, hi. Let me open with a quick word of prayer. God, we thank you for this day and for the season of Advent. Bless Jason tomorrow as he defends his thesis. Bring Ronnie home safely. Please let this room cool off or at least let the people enjoy their nap. May my words reflect your light and goodness and not get in the way. Amen. So the topic of today's sermon is Prince of Peace. As a church, over the last few weeks, we've been going through the names of the Messiah in Isaiah 9. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and then today we come to the last and most well-known of the names in the list, Prince of Peace. As with all the names, we're asking, what does this name mean, and why should we care? And so to answer that question, I'm going to give you three points. One, the profundity of peace. Two, the problem of peace. And three, the promise of the prince. The profundity of peace, the profoundness, the depth of the meaning of peace. 
the problem of peace, which is that we all want peace, but we don't have it, and the promise of the prince, which I'm not going to give away that one. I'm going to keep you on the edge of your seat. First, the profundity of peace. So if you couldn't tell from my three points, I've always loved alliteration. So of all the names on Isaiah's list, I've always thought the coolest one is Prince of Peace. It's like the Sultan of Swat, or the Duke of Dubuque, you know, but it's so attractive it can end up being kind of superficial, you know. Prince of Peace, come on, Prince of Peace. But things that are familiar to us or seem familiar can actually become unfamiliar. So let's review the definition of peace. And I think there are three good common definitions of peace. And they're all defined by their opposite. So the first definition of peace is obvious. It is the absence of war. War is brutal, violent. It leaves scars on the environment as well as the psyche. Bertrand Russell said, war does not determine who's right, only who's left. Peace is when war is over. Peace is the absence of war. We want this peace. There's another meaning of peace that isn't about war between nations, but between individuals and groups. We'll call the second definition of peace the absence of of conflict, of uh, the absence of interpersonal conflict. It's what everything in the news is about these days. The Democrats and the Republicans are fighting each other. The auto workers are on strike against the auto companies. Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg apparently want to fight. Some would argue that the conflicts between groups is the defining characteristic of modern life. New York Times columnist David Brooks writes the following. A hard-edged ideological framework has been spreading in high school and college, on social media, in diversity training seminars, and in popular culture. The common ideas associated with this ideology are by now pretty familiar. We shouldn't emphasize what unites us as all human beings. We should emphasize what divides us. Human relations are power struggles between oppressors and oppressed groups. Human communication is limited, and a person in one group can never really understand the experience of someone in the other group. And finally, the goal of rising of bigotry, naive. Bigotry and racism are permanent and indestructible components of American society. Whether you believe that or not, no one likes the idea of it. And even the question of whether you believe that or not has become a major source of conflict in our time. Peace is the opposite of this kind of conflict. We want this kind of peace too. We also want peace in our personal lives because we experience personal conflict all the time. We have conflict at home between husband and wife, parents and children. We have conflict at work between boss and worker, between coworkers. These things are frustrating, they're emotionally tiring, and they happen constantly. Peace is the absence of this kind of conflict. So we have peace as the absence of war, peace as the absence of interpersonal conflict, and there's a third definition, peace, which is not about what's going on out there, but what's going on 
in here. Inner peace. Internal tranquility. This is the absence of emotional disturbance. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? The absence of emotional disturbance. Frankly, this might be the definition that's most on your mind this December. Christmas and the holidays and the end of the year is simultaneously so fun and so horrible because of how busy we are. It's like you're living your normal life, as hard as it is, and then suddenly you have three times as much to do as the month before. Thanksgiving finishes up, and before you're done digesting, bam, it's Black Friday, and you've got deals to capitalize on. Then, because you're a good person, you got to participate in Giving Tuesday. you got to get a tree and then decorate it, then put lights up on the outside of the house, then take a picture for the Christmas card, then bake cookies, enough for your family and enough to give to the neighbors. You need to make a gift list for every person in your family, then share those ideas with all your relatives who don't know what to buy for your eight-year-old. Then you need to buy the gifts for those people you gave ideas to. There's Christmas parties that you want to be invited to, but when the day comes, you don't really want to go to because you're so busy buying gifts, but you already said yes, and oh, it's an ugly sweater party, gotta go and buy one of those. Then it's back to the Christmas cards and you gotta update the addresses for all the people that moved. And did the Johnsons move this year or was that last year? I'll write to them and ask. And then you realize you don't have stamps because you never mail real letters to anyone anymore so you have to go and buy stamps. Thankfully, the post office is a well-oiled machine of efficiency. <laughs> so just three hours later and you're back from that trip licking the envelopes, and then back to the Christmas gifts because it turns out you need to wrap them all in pretty paper. And in my house, you can't just say, to Jessica from Max. You need to have a creative gift tag for everyone, like, to my favorite Jersey girl from Colorado Stud, which isn't even that creative. So you think about it later and whether you could have done better. And is the cat trying to eat the poinsettia? And are we going to church on Christmas Day or is it just Christmas Eve? And when do the in-laws come on Christmas Eve? And why do I feel so stressed the entire month of December? Where's my Christmas peace? Come on. Thank you. I need a drink of water. That's why when the Christmas carolers sing Silent Night, Holy Night, whether you are a Christian or not, it's like catnip. Yes, silence. All is calm, all is bright. Give me that. I want that kind of peace. Freedom from emotional disturbance. So if peace is three definitions, absence of war, the absence of interpersonal conflict, the absence of personal emotional disturbance. But still, we haven't covered the full depth of the meaning of, pre, of peace as it's meant in this passage. Isaiah was written in Hebrew, and the phrase Prince of Peace in that language is Sar Shalom. Sar, translated as Prince, Shalom, translated as Peace. Shalom is arguably one of the most important words to the Jewish people. It is the most common way to greet someone in Israel, their form of both hello and goodbye, and for good reason. The word shalom is not meant just as the absence of war or the absence of conflict. Shalom means the presence of everything you need for well-being, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Shalom means completeness, wholeness. 
It means deep, holistic flourishing in every aspect of life. It is the world as it was meant to be. Walter Bruggeman, an Old Testament scholar, says this, Shalom is the substance of the biblical vision of community embracing all creation. A social order of justice in which the rights of the poor and vulnerable are securely established, wherein all can share in the resources of the earth. A cooperative spirit wherein every person has access to enough for a healthy life. And a trusting world in which enemies can put down their swords and come to the feast that Yahweh will provide for all peoples. We have a passing of the peace in every worship service. A lot of us, myself included, basically use the time to say hi and maybe find out where someone lives or where they're from. But the intent is truly to wish peace to each other, to wish shalom to each other. I wish for you everything you need to be whole, healthy, and complete. Okay, this is going to sound silly, but if you want a good sense of what shalom looks like, I would recommend to you the movie Groundhog Day. If you haven't seen it, the premise is that Bill Murray plays a cynical local TV weatherman named Phil Connors. Now, Phil is sent to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania on February 2nd to cover Groundhog Day, and he hates being there. He thinks it's a ridiculous tradition. He can't stand the annoying people in the small town, and he wants to get back to the city as soon as he can. Well, Phil muscles through it, grits his teeth, and he goes to bed, and he wakes up the next day, and in the morning, he finds out it's February 2nd again, Groundhog Day. So he thinks he's dreaming or hallucinating, and he makes it through that day, and he goes to bed, and he wakes up the next morning, and it's Groundhog Day again. He's stuck in a time loop where every day is Groundhog Day. And initially, he's frustrated. He's mad. He repeats the same day over and over in this miserable little town, and he starts acting out and experimenting. He realizes there's no consequences to his actions because he repeats the day over and over. So he goes to the diner and he orders all the donuts and pastries and eats them in a single sitting. He seduces women to sleep with him. He steals a car and runs it into a train. The next day he wakes up like nothing happened. Groundhog Day again. Well, Phil begins to fall in love with his producer. And each day he gets to know her better and he uses that knowledge the next day to manipulate her into falling in love with him. Except it never quite works. Eventually, Phil starts living differently. Not trying to manipulate things for himself, but to do things for others. And because he has so much experience with the same day, he knows exactly what will happen all over town and starts using the knowledge to help people to live the perfect day. He arranges his time to be there to save a choking man at a restaurant, to be there just in time with a spare tire when a group of women have a flat. He times his afternoon walk to save a kid falling out of a tree. He gets a homeless man off the street who otherwise would die that night. He counsels a young engaged couple who are going to break up to forgive each other and stay together. It's comical, like how many good deeds he strings together in a single day, but it's, but it's touching, too. He engages with the elderly with genuine interest 
and compassion. He learns the piano. He brings down the house with his keyboard playing at the town party. He lives a day that is completely filled with love and care for the people of this town that he previously despised. It is a picture of shalom. The town is far more whole and flourishing in every sense because Phil was there. Phil was tormented by repeating the same day over and over, but he turns the torment into blessing. And when Phil stops trying to make things work for himself, that's when he finds himself the happiest. When he stops trying to manipulate the producer to fall in love with him, that's when she falls in love with him. When he stops trying to escape this Groundhog Day, that's when the next morning he wakes up and it's February 3rd. Groundhog Day is over. This is Shalom. All things in creation woven together for good. Shalom peace is profound. No more war. No more fighting with family or neighbors politicians. No more inner angst. Everything you need for your well-being, all of creation woven together. This is the profundity of peace. No wonder all the Christmas carols that are great sing about peace. So why don't we have it? That brings us to our second point, the problem of peace. And it's a very simple point. So peace is this incredible state of mind and this incredible state of the world. It isn't controversial. It isn't a matter of taste. It's not like some people want small government, other people want government to perform more services. No, everybody wants peace, everybody. But we don't have it. Look around the world today. October 7th was a gruesome day of terror that's led to weeks of brutal war in Israel and Gaza. The Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022 has launched a war that's now almost two years running. Far less reported is the war in Azerbaijan. There are other conflicts around the world. We don't have an absence of war. We don't have peace. Look around at our country. We don't have freedom from conflict. We're increasingly polarized around politics. Social media platforms are dividing people more than they bring us together. We don't have peace. Finally, look at your own heart. There are things that are making you feel anxious. There are things that are making you feel angry. There are things that might be making you feel discouraged. For some of you, it's hard even to sit here and not be deeply distracted. I've been there. We don't have peace. So when you look at the world and you look at your own experience, it's hard to reconcile that with all these wonderful carols about peace. It's why a lot of people say they don't believe in God. After all, if God existed, why would he make life so hard? Why would he allow the horrors of war? Why did he let my parents get divorced? Why do I have to live with this diagnosis? Why am I trapped in this relationship? The most famous Christmas scripture isn't Isaiah 9, it's Luke 2, printed in the bulletin. There's a little bit longer version of it. The angel said to them, fear not, for I, behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, 
which shall be for all people. For unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. That sounds awesome. But it's been 2,000 years. If Christmas is about Jesus coming to bring peace on earth, he didn't succeed. At least not in the way we expected. But see, Jesus wasn't born to wipe out war. Later in the same gospel, Luke, in chapter 21, Jesus' disciples ask, what will be the sign of the end of the age? And he replies, when you hear of wars and uprisings, don't be surprised. These things must happen. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. He says you shouldn't expect wars to end. Don't expect international peace as a result of my birth. So what should we expect? Is Jesus contradicting Isaiah? What do we make of this? Brings us to our third point, the promise of the prince. This sermon is titled Prince of Peace, and we talked about the profundity of peace, the problem of peace. We've just been talking about peace. We haven't talked about the prince. So let's go there. If we're going to understand who this prince is, we should understand who princes are in general. And there are two defining characteristics of every prince. First, a prince is someone to whom you must give allegiance if you're going to live in the kingdom. Second, a prince is someone in line to be the king. Every prince has these two qualities. So, who is this prince? The passage in Isaiah is written as a prophecy about the Messiah. Now, what's the Messiah, or who's the Messiah? The Messiah is the one predicted in the Jewish scriptures who would bring about a time of peace, justice, and redemption for the Jewish people. The prophecy about this prince is that one day he would make all things new. He would bring shalom. He would bring peace. The question is, how would he do it? And in a war, there are two ways to make peace, aren't there? First, you defeat your enemy. That's the first way to make peace. You're at war, you win. You overwhelm your opponent with strength. You get peace by subduing the enemy. Conversely, the second way to achieve peace is through surrender. Wars end when someone waves the white flag. In this case, it's you. You surrender, you give up the battle, you lose. There's, that's the other way to create peace. And of the two, it's pretty obvious which one most people would prefer. So it makes sense that for centuries, people interpreted these prophecies that way, that if the Messiah was coming to make peace and create shalom, he would do it the first way, by winning. He would be a military or political figure who would overthrow those who were oppressing the Jewish people. He would defeat the enemy. This was the most common way people understood Isaiah 9 and the prophecies about the Messiah. And for a long time, this is how Jesus' own disciples 
uh, believed uh, he would behave. But Jesus didn't lead a military victory, did he? He died. He died. He surrendered to the Roman authorities that came to capture him, and he was put to death on a cross. How could he be the Messiah? He lost. And yet, and yet his followers didn't abandon him. They didn't say, oh, wait, this isn't the way it was supposed to go. Uh, They stuck with him. Why? There's a clue in the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Luke tells the story of a paralyzed man who was brought to Jesus by his friends because they heard Jesus was a healer. However, the place where Jesus was teaching was crowded. His friends, they lower the man through the roof to bring him to Jesus. You've heard this story before. We all know what's going to happen. They're going to lower the man down through the roof, and Jesus is going to heal him. It's going to be beautiful. Except that's not what happens, at least not immediately. Seeing the faith of this man's friends, instead of healing the man, Jesus tells the man, your sins are forgiven. Oh, that is an unforeseen twist. You can imagine his disciples saying, yo, Jesus, uh, we love what you're doing here, but that's kind of not the point. He's here for a healing. Imagine you injure your foot and you go to the Stedman Hawkins Clinic to be examined And the orthopedist comes in and looks at the x-ray and turns to you and says, your sins are forgiven. You're probably like, thank you. Uh, That's great. And also, what about my foot? Jesus saying that wasn't just confusing to people. It was controversial. It immediately stirred the crowd because there were religious leaders there And they started questioning, who is this that thinks he can forgive sins? Only God can do that. And Jesus responds to them. He says, your sins, he says, is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Then he heals the paralyzed man. The man gets up, takes his mat, and he walks out. The implication is that Jesus can do both. Heal your body and heal your soul. You see, Jesus' disciples didn't scatter when he died because three days later he rose. And they didn't scatter because while he was with them in many instances like this one, he had showed them he was going to defy their expectations about the kind of peace the Messiah would bring. He wasn't concerned about the political order. With the paralytic, Jesus was saying the man's main problem wasn't his legs, it was his heart. I mean that metaphorically. The main issue wasn't the lack of peace in his body. It was his lack of peace with God. And similarly, the main issue for the Israelites was not their oppression by the Romans. The greater issue was the oppression of sin itself. It was that that Jesus came to fix. And that is what we need fixed as well. Your primary problem is not whether Trump or Biden gets elected. Your primary problem is not whether you get the promotion you've been craving or you get passed over. Your primary problem is not your neighbor, whether they'll finally clean up their yard and look at more presentable. Your primary problem is not whether you'll lose the weight you've been wrestling with and feel okay about your body. 
Your primary problem isn't whether your dad is going to be a jerk at the family holiday again. Your primary problem isn't whether that boy you have a crush on is finally going to notice you or not. No, our primary problem, mine included, is that we look at those kinds of things as our primary problem. Jesus was showing the crowd and showing us that we're looking at our circumstances to give us the kind of peace that only can be found in God. In reality, our primary problem is sin, but not the way you're thinking about it. What is sin? What is it? We tend to think simplistically about sin as being bad instead of being good or as breaking the Ten Commandments. Those definitions aren't wrong, but they're incomplete. See, when Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He responded, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. And a second commandment is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, everything in the Ten Commandments, everything in the Scriptures is summarized by that. You think it's simple, and it is, but it's not a low standard. He doesn't say, live a good enough life or be more good than bad and you'll get to go to heaven. But that's how most of us kind of operate. You know that old joke about how to survive a bear attack? You don't need to run faster than the bear. You just need to run faster than the people you're camping with. That's how a lot of people, most of us, think about the internal implications of our lives. You look around and say, well, I'm not as bad as that guy. I think I'm doing all right. Most of us think we're doing pretty good. We're pretty honest. We're pretty loving. Pretty selfless. But Jesus isn't talking about those kinds of standards. He's talking about the standards of the creator of the universe. The one who makes mountains and dolphins and trees and galaxies. He says, pretty good? Not the right standard. No, he says, love God with all your heart, all your mind, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself, all, 100%. And if we're honest with ourselves, none of us are even close. Not only are we not the people that God calls us to be, we're not even the people we know that we should be. We can't run fast enough to outrun the bear. We can't be good enough to meet God's perfect standard. We need to be rescued. We need a savior. We need a Messiah. We need a prince of peace. The message of Jesus is that we're more sinful than we dare admit. We're not even close to loving God with everything we've got or loving our neighbors as well as he calls us to. We're more sinful than we dare admit, but at the same time, more loved than we could ever imagine. More loved, you say? Yes. Phil Connors lived the perfect Groundhog Day and created shalom in the town of Punxsutawney. But there is a truer and better Phil Connors. There is one who stepped into our Groundhog Day to make it right and create peace between God and mankind. There is another who turned his personal torment into blessing. 
Jesus lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died so that we could be restored, so that we could experience shalom. This is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And if he's a prince, remember there are two defining characteristics of princes. One, princes demand allegiance. If you read about Jesus in the Gospels, he's constantly telling people, follow me. He makes them choose their allegiance because he is the prince of peace and princes demand allegiance. Other princes will ask you to die for them, but this is the one prince who will die for you. Why wouldn't you want to follow someone like that? The second defining characteristic of a prince is that one day a prince will become a king. And in a sense, a prince already is a king, but not yet. In a similar way, the peace Jesus came to bring is already here, but is not yet complete. It's coming. I've been reading a new biography of Martin Luther King by Jonathan Eig, and I was reminded of the section in his famous speech in Washington where he said, I have a dream that one day every valley shall be exalted, every hill and mountain shall be made low, the rough places will be made plain, and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. Do you know he's quoting from Scripture there? He's quoted from Isaiah. He was quoting from a writing about what would happen when the Prince of Peace comes. Isaiah says there will come a day when Jesus is revealed in all his glory, not only as the Prince of Peace, but as the king of kings. And in that day, the lion will lay down with the lamb. In Isaiah chapter 2, it describes the prince of peace as one who will judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. Someday Jesus will return, and all wars will cease, and all tears will be dried. At the end of the Lord of the Rings, <clears throat> Samwise Gamgee encounters Gandalf the great wizard who's been missing. And he says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the sound of pure merriment for days without count. This is the promise of the prince, that in the words of the Apostle Paul, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And the peace is not just for you. It is for all people because it is a shalom that will encompass the earth. The world and everything in it will thrive. Do you want that? 
Do you yearn for that kind of peace? Jesus says, follow me. I'll close with this. If you've really experienced the peace of God in your life, it should manifest itself into peacemaking with others. You should be quick to forgive because you know how much you've been forgiven. You should be quick to admit when you're wrong because you don't need to be defensive about being right. And you should be working to bring about shalom in your corner of the world, however big or small that corner is. I heard a wonderful story just recently that illustrates this. A few days ago, I, was, I called my friend Marco, and I asked what he'd been up to, and he said it was kind of a crazy story. He was driving downtown near 26th and Zunai, and he passed an encampment of homeless people. He'd driven by them several times before, but for some reason, on this day, he turned around and went, at, went back. He got out of his truck, and he started talking to them. They were migrants from Venezuela. They had traveled thousands of miles and endured days without food. One of them had been kidnapped by a cartel in Mexico and had escaped. But they had finally made it to Denver, and they had nothing. There were fathers and mothers and small children, and they had no place to live, no money, no jobs. They were sleeping on the cement. And as Marco listened to this, his heart broke. He'd immigrated here himself from Serbia years ago. He started crying, and he said they started crying. And something changed in Marco. He was talking to three of the men, and he said, get in my truck. <laughs> Where are we going, sir, they said. I don't know, said Marco, but we're going to figure it out. Over the next two weeks, Marco and his wife and several friends they recruited essentially adopted these five families. He got them places to live. He got jobs for three of the men. He got the kids vaccinated and into school. He took them thrift store shopping and he picked up the bill. He helped them open bank accounts. He found out one of the kids played piano, so he got an old piano. He bought them a Christmas tree. He let them teach his family how to make a rapist. He continues looking for donations of clothes for the families and looking for jobs for some of the adults, whom he promises are hard workers who know how to clean and how to style hair. It's not an overstatement to say that Marco transformed the lives of these people. He may have saved their lives. And it's because... Instead of living his Groundhog Day, driving past them again and again, this time he decided to turn his truck around and meet them. He became like Phil Connors. He became like Jesus. Look, the problems of our world are way too big for any one of us to think we can make much of a dent. The problems of our city are so big that it's kind of overwhelming. we can turn the truck around. We can end Groundhog Day. Where are we going, sir? I don't know, but we're going to figure it out.
Merry Christmas. Peace be with you. Let's pray. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We yearn for peace, but we don't have it. We think the temporary things of this world will give us the lasting peace that can only be found in you. But you didn't wait for us to figure that out. You came to give us peace and give it freely. We need only believe in you and follow you. Thank you. May our lives reflect the beauty of your gift, and may we be peacemakers this Christmas. Amen.